it was this interesting melting pot and, and unique place in the world that I was like, all right, I, I got to come back to. I want to learn more about what's going on like in this part of the world. Europe was cool, but like this is like another planet. Yeah. Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Join me as I dig into the question of how people like you and I might get more out of life and love. Thanks for being here. Hello, fellow humans. After a long absence, I have returned. It's really good to be doing this again. It's good to be talking to you today. And I'm excited to share a new episode of Humans in Love. As you know, I took the month of August off. And some of you asked why I did that. The short answer is I want to keep this podcast sustainable. And it's currently a one-man operation. It's a lot of work. It's work I really enjoy. But, you know, it, it, it keeps me pretty busy. So I think I need to take some time now and then to reset, recharge, whatever you want to call it. And I had a great time. I I went down south to the island of Phuket in the far south of Thailand. That was really great. I'm a man who really loves the ocean, and it always re-energizes me to get get back down there. And aside from from that, and cycling my, my way around Chiang Mai up here in the north of Thailand quite a bit, it's been a bit busy, it's been a busy month. I, uh, I think I told you in the last podcast about this BBC News feature that came out. And to my surprise, it turns out this weird little issue of, of retroactive jealousy is much more common than a lot of people realize, and certainly more so than, than I realized before. Uh, my email inbox has blown up even more. Uh, traffic to my website, retroactivejealousy.com, has probably doubled. It's, uh, it's been a busy, busy month, and I'm really excited about, about the impact that the article had and the fact that a lot of people seem to be connecting with, with what I said in that, in that article. But to anyone listening to this, I, I guess I wanted to say, you know, it's not easy putting yourself out there with one of the most embarrassing <laughs> periods of your life. Um... But one thing I've learned is that the reaction is never as traumatic, shall we say, or bad as you think it's going to be. You know, a lot of people appreciate honesty. They appreciate when you're being real with them. And uh, you have the potential to help a lot of people if you're honest about your shit, so to speak. So if you're considering being more open and honest, if you're considering, um, you know, sharing with some people, it doesn't have to be the, the World Wide Web, but if you're considering sharing with people, you know, your, your dark secrets and, and the, the parts of yourself that you're ashamed of, you know, choose wisely, don't share them with anyone. But I have found in my experience that more often than not, it's really liberating and you have the potential to, to, uh, to do a lot of good when you do that. Aside from that, I'll, I'll get off my pedestal, my, uh, my grandstand here, and I will introduce today's guest. Today's guest is Dustin Joseph. Dustin is a friend of mine here in Chiang Mai. He's an entrepreneur. He's a chef. He is a master coffee roaster. And today's conversation is 
Really? Well, I guess the way to describe it, it's less an interview and more of just a conversation. So my favorite podcast is called Tangentially Speaking with Dr. Chris Ryan. And it's very much a conversational type show where you kind of feel like a fly on the wall for a conversation between new friends. And that's very much what today's chat uh, was about. Dustin and I cover a lot of ground today. Um, he's led a fascinating life. He's lived all over the world. He has done a lot of interesting projects all over the world. And he's really into food. And I really appreciate that. You know, like for me, you know, music is is one of my great passions, personal development. But when I meet someone, I don't really care what they're into as long as they're into something. You know, I like I like passionate people, hence the the subtitle of this podcast. And Dustin is very much a, a passionate person. He has explored food cultures all over the world, I think just about on every continent. He has done a lot of really interesting travel and cultural uh, and culinary exploration. And he has a, a coffee company here in Chiang Mai, Northern Thailand, that ships to many places in the world. Uh, they make amazing Northern Thai coffee. They roast it. And he does a really good job. Um, so I think you'll, you'll find today's conversation very interesting and inspiring. Uh, I certainly did. I love meeting people who have a real zest for life, who are passionate about their work, and who are actively working to make the world a better place. And Dustin certainly falls into that category. Before we get into it, I'll remind you that you can find information about my show and everything we talk about today in the show notes at humansinlove.com. And I'll also ask you, uh, as per usual, to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Without any further ado, I present to you my conversation with Dustin Joseph. I guess the main reason I wanted to talk to you is I want to know how you got here, <laughs> like how you ended up in Northern Thailand making coffee. First off, like where, when did you start traveling? Where, where did that interest come from, do you think? You know, I think uh, my dad's an interesting character, and I think he brought that on a lot. You know, he inspired me and influenced me to kind of like reach out. He took me to Mexico a couple times when I was pretty young which I, I don't think normal North American uh, parents would take you to, like, rural parts of Mexico. When and this like, is when, like, early 90s kind of thing? Or? Yeah, the first time I went to Mexico, I must have been 8 or 9 years old. You know, so, uh, yeah, 20, 20, you know, 24 years ago or something like that. Yeah. And we'd go to, like, the Yucatan. I remember, like, going to Tulum mm -hmm. and, like, uh, that part of, like, the Yucatan before it was established, you know, before before it was, you know, taken over by tourism, kind of, so you could, like, climb around in the ruins and just walk around is really unregulated and what did, did slash does your dad do he, you know it's a long story he's a he's a creator of sense you know he's an architect an engineer um not really classical trained but he you know he got his master's mechanics when he was 15 and in, in ohio and started building cars and and working uh you know working in that field and then he moved to you know 
houses, fine woodworking. He did clay animation for a while. Uh, he produced movies as well. I think one of them was a sex education movie he did with clay animation. Man, I need to interview him. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, he's a he's a he's a character. And then you know he had a recording studio in Boulder, Colorado for you know years. He kind of self taught taught himself how to build it up. We also I collaborated with him. You know, this had to be 15 plus years ago, but we did uh, speakers as well. Built crossovers, built whole speaker systems, and and uh, installed them in people's like you know, works microbreweries or restaurants or you know. We also built the microbrewery in Colorado Mountain Sun for his friend. Uh, you know, a lot of stuff. You know, now he's building the the machines. You know, the coffee roasters. And, you know, he's always just been a creative person and likes to take on projects that become business. And he dives in and builds stuff. And when you were in Colorado, is this when your path? when your path crossed with uh, Hunter S. Thompson? You know, this is, a, uh, this was like my uncle and their whole crew of uh, old Naropa and, and interesting, you know, people who kind of migrated to Colorado back in the, you know, 80s, 70s and 80s. It was more of these like, you know, writers and philosophers and people who were like, you know, Ram Dass and and yeah. a lot of interesting uh you know interesting people ended up there and it was uh you know my my uncle knew him and 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 then some of my friends their family friends they would always have these like gatherings and and you know Hunter might show up or like uh you know I think Bill Murray when Bill Murray and Hunter were doing uh where the oh, buffalo yeah. roam the movie he ended up like coming to Colorado quite often you know one of my favorite stories is the Boulder uh the Boulder Golf Club and uh, they got kicked out because they were trying to shoot their their golf balls in the hole with their <laughs> with their forty fives. Oh, I don't think I've heard that one. <laughs> I don't know. It was it had to be in the news, but I don't think it it, it must have not made it after after that. That's probably <laughs> before my time. Yeah. Oh, definitely before mine too. Yeah, but yeah. it was you know it was a story that you know my uncle uh, told me, or you know it's it's interesting. So where did you spend most of your youth? Uh, Boulder, Colorado. You know, I I grew up there. I grew up in Boulder. I was born in Michigan, and uh, you know, I born in Michigan and moved to Colorado when I was super young. You know, four or five years old, and then after that, it was you know full time there till I was about eighteen when I took off. <laughs> and where did you take off to? The first place I went was Europe, alone. You know, I, I went to go, well, I actually went to go meet a friend, but I flew in, you know, I was like, bought the plane ticket and got inspired to go travel. And and at that point, I'd already been living on my own for a couple of years, had my own my own house, my own room in a house with some friends and and uh, working full time in a restaurant. So I decided to take a little break and bought a plane ticket and flew to Amsterdam. How did you get, what made you want to cook? Like, where did that interest come from? Were you always a foodie, I guess is what I'm asking. I think food is like, it's the connector. It's it's for people who are, you know, you could probably end up in multiple paths depending on what, how people support you and guide you in life, you know, but a lot of my friends and a lot of people who are similar to me, they're, they're in that realm of like creators or people who want to be hands-on. They're musicians, they're, you know, writers, they're, uh, you know, artists of some sort, they're cooks, they're, you know, chefs. It's a... Uh, you know, I think it's a nomadic path of, of people who don't want to get stuck in these uh, boxes and, and reform jobs. So, I, you know, at that point, yeah, I mean, I always enjoyed food. 
you know, I remember making a little bit of money when I was a kid. Like, I was always hustling, trying to make money because mm-hmm. I, I knew I wanted experience and I knew money could buy experience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I'd, I'd soak toothpicks in cinnamon oil in, in, in like, you know, fourth grade and then sell each individual toothpick for like 10 cents or, you know, doing anything to make money. And I remember the first, like, you know, money I saved up, I took all my friends to a restaurant for some reason. Wow. You know, I thought it would, I thought it'd be a, a fun experience to go kind of ball out and, and eat something nice and uh you know i I always you know i always enjoyed that and i think i was always interested in just experience and i think food is one of those things that's it's a connector it's an experience so um but you know i fell into that realm because it's a job and it's a job normally for people who are like misfits or, or can't find their place or you know need some temporary work Hey, come on, wash some dishes and, and, you know, prep some vegetables for a month and you can move to the next spot. It was, uh, you know, it was more of that situation. And did you think when you were first getting into the restaurant industry, did you think that this was going to be your path in life? Like, did you want to be a professional chef? When I first got in, definitely wasn't on my radar completely. You know, I, I stepped in, I started working in kitchens when I was 15 you know i think the first job i got was in a grocery store when i was 12 you know 13 14 i'd work little part-time jobs in this grocery store and then when i was 15 i started working in uh you know mustard's last stand this this chicago hot dog stand that's kind of popular in 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 boulder it's a it was a good spot and then i also worked in a barbecue spot that same year and you know I, i didn't really take it serious like I wanted to cook cook until I you know I met some other people who were inspiring and and, you know chefs one of my best friends Latham Hill and you know in Cologne Germany right now Brian Lockwood who's in New York at 11 Madison uh you know uh, Cameron uh he's in Chicago with his own restaurant you know a lot of like the big brothers of uh of the culinary world for me that kind of introduced me and said you know if you're you know you're talented you're you know you obviously have a good uh you know connection with food like follow it and then i kept going (laughs) and so tell me about that first trip to europe what was that like you know it was liberating it was uh, just like the 18 year old backpacking hostel that scene you know like i said at that point i'd already been living on my own for a while so i think i got that like backpacking vibe out of me you know i went alone and i didn't stay in a hostel you know i still I, i booked the cheapest rooms I could get with a bathroom and uh you know the minimal comforts that I could you know afford but you're balling man if you're in Europe at 18 and you're not staying in a hostel that's like next level uh you know I've only stayed in a hostel once actually and it was years after that in Amsterdam maybe you know I've been to Amsterdam maybe eight or nine times now and you know that was an accident me and my friend both thought we were on a budget so he booked the room he's like I thought you were on a budget I'm like no he's like you on a budget no what are we doing here let's get out of here no, I, I like privacy. You know, I'm not scared to to rough it because I've stayed in, you know, I've slept on in you know, dirt floors in Nepal and you know, places in rural Thailand that most people don't even go. You know, I've slept on docks of fishing villages for months. <laughs> you know, ex- exploring the culture and the food and and uh, it's not about roughing it, but you know, privacy. And, yeah. But yeah, I mean that first trip was liberating. You know, I spent a little bit in Amsterdam and then I ended up flying to moving on to Rome and spent, you know, a couple weeks, met a friend in Rome and then my same chef friend who inspired me to kind of follow the, that path, my same friend Latham who's, who's in Germany still, he's been living in Europe for 10 years now. 
but uh you know it was good and then switzerland and moved around and kind of got my first taste to get out and that that inspired me because even you go to europe you see different cultures you know if you're in the u.s you might see a, a select cultures but you might not get depending on where you are in the u.s but you know going there you got to see like a, this huge african culture you got to see a lot of this you know middle eastern and like persian and you know even the asian culture in, in bits and pieces and and it was like uh you know, it kind of, it inspired me to go deeper to a place that was even less familiar, meaning, you know, Asia, or Africa, or South, you know, places that were nothing like the Western culture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So did you go back to the States after that? Yeah, it was uh, two, three weeks. I went back. Uh, I tried to quit my job. They wouldn't let me, they, they said I, you know, I, I they said two weeks. I had like 10 days or something they would give me with my job back. And I said, okay, I quit then. And then they said, well, how long do you need? And I was like, 20 days. I'm like, okay, you got your job back after 20 days. I was like, okay, cool. I still ended up quitting that job. And then that same year, why I quit that job is that same year I came to Thailand. Oh, the same, so you were what, 19? Yeah, yeah first time I came to Thailand, I was 18. So what was, was that like? Uh, whew, it was cool. I mean, my uncle's been living here. Okay. For, you know, he's been coming to Asia for over 30 years to study, you know, astrology, Josie, like, uh, Vedic astrology, and, and, uh, you know, he's a kind of a spiritual, he has an interest in studying spirituality, you know, religious studies. Yeah, not that too, but he's also like, you know, he's not a, he's not a Baba guru, you know, he's not, he does, he, but he enjoys this, you know, this, this culture, and he's been studying it as like more of a philosophy standpoint, and like, you know, anthropology interest in, in people in general, and, you know, so he'd been coming here forever, and that same year I got back from Europe, and my dad was like, you know, me and my dad are good friends, hey, you want to go visit your uncle? And I was like, you know, after I just got back from Europe, I was like, all I wanted to do was go somewhere else, kind of, because, you know, I was interested. So that same year, we, you know, we came out here and, uh, you know, I spent two weeks and then I, moved, I went back and I, uh, you know, I quit my job uh, again, a different job. And uh, I also was in culinary at the culinary school at that time. I just started. I had a break when I came to Thailand. So that first trip to Thailand, do you think you would have had any inkling whatsoever that, what, 20 years later you'd be living here basically did you have any like did thailand grab you in that way back then or was it more of like a slow burning infatuation kind of thing Ooh. i mean yeah it definitely grabbed me that's why i moved back out here you know it was a place that automatically you know based on my experiences and my time in in the u.s it was the polar opposite you know it was a place that you know supported youth and uh you know had a, a sense of community you know, it was based around a food culture. You know, they don't, you know, they don't interact like, you know, Westerners. They, you know, they, they have the mentality of, like, getting people involved. Come eat. King Kao Yang. You know, what have you eaten yet? You want to come eat? eat? You know, it's all about food. It was, like, an interesting, you know, uh, turning point in my mind that I was like, okay, these guys are cool. <laughs> and don't you feel, too, I mean, I feel this way about, Chiang Mai in particular, like Northern Thailand, but I've also had similar experiences when I've lived in Colombia and India. I feel like particularly like people around our age, like the younger generations, it kind of feels to me like things are getting better and people know that and there's more optimism here. And it's like people, I think they're more optimistic for their children. Yeah. In my experience, it seems like 
my rough generation here, it's like people are more excited about life. There's more going on. They're more inclined to start up a random business. They're more inclined to take chances. And there's a real, there's a real energy in places like this, particularly in Chiang Mai, I find, um, among young people that I don't always find back home. Do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's also just a different time and a different place. I think uh, we're in a different world out here, especially in the sense of like, where things are with the rise of the middle class and things that you know maybe western parts of the world experienced a long time ago so the, the people have gone over a hump and they start you know there's like a pessimistic you know approach to life in the west because people have kind of been over over this zone and 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 they also get jaded i think people are jaded in, in lots of places and and i think particularly after like the 0708 crash yeah. like i felt that there was a tangible shift in, in the energy in a lot of places back back home um I think it's starting to get better now on, on like recent trips. I've been back to cities like Ottawa and Toronto and Vancouver and stuff. It seems to be, and this is totally anecdotal, you know, I could be totally full of shit, but in my experience, it feels like people are starting to feel good again. But when I really started traveling hardcore, it was right around the time of that crash. And I think it was kind of maybe related to that in some ways that I think I'd find a better future, you know, outside of Canada, but that's another tangent. Um, so you go back to America after your trip to Thailand, and you're you're studying to be a chef at this point. Yeah, I mean, I already had uh, you know I already had some time in the restaurant. I had a couple years working in a you know international restaurant, and uh, I wanted to kind of spend my time wisely because I knew that I was going to leave the states and that I wanted to go experience. Originally, I thought I was going to go to Europe. You know, go go work in Italy or France and, and kind of learn, you know, learn, learn more about the roots of like uh, Western cuisine and, and where they come from. And, you know, I was kind of always curious about this, uh, you know, anthropology and food. And later I realized, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a thing you could pursue. But um, I decided to spend my time wisely. So I went to school. <laughs> I went to a, a part-time culinary school that was for people already in the industry. Okay. So it was like uh, I'd work from 7 in the morning to like 4, and then I'd go to class from 5 to 11. Hmm. It's a long day. <laughs> yeah, it was a long year because it was a one-year program. So, you know, I spent that first year pretty much, uh, you know, you know, staying out of trouble. <laughs> if you're that busy, uh, you don't have much energy to, to go out after to do different things, so... You know, and it was uh, coming from this background and watching a lot of different chefs and kind of this, um, you know, non-schooled chef. You know, I had I didn't have a proper education in the culinary field, so I kind of uh, wanted that. So I had like that clout. You know, I could tell people, "Hey, look at you know, I have a piece of paper that I spent a bunch of money on that says I can do something," and then people might take you a little serious. You know, so. It was also, you know, that was that was the point, you know, to get the to get the knowledge a little bit and to get the background, you know, and uh, I don't know if I feel like I got out what I wanted, but you know, I don't even know where that piece of paper is. I never <laughs> I never used it. Uh, I think I had to pull it up one time when I was traveling, and I had all my knives in my bag, and people were like, "Are you a real chef?" And I was like, "Here's a business card." And they're like, uh, "Does that mean anything?" And then like, "We need to see papers." I'm like. And I ended up, I think I, I found it somehow at that point. But. Did your relationship to food change in that period? Like, do you feel like you learned in, much? In yeah. 
I mean, definitely, you know, I, you know, as much as I, I, I'm pessimistic about the educational systems in general, it depends on your teacher, it depends on the, the structure of it. You know, some of, some of them are overstructured, some of them, you know, lack, the teachers lack uh, compassion for people who are learning, you know, and I think I got a bad, you know, I got a bad teacher. Because it wasn't, you know, I had a bad experience in, in the sense of, like, people not being supportive and, you know, me being the person I am, questioning the teacher as well, like, you know, asking questions and trying to be, you know, we're trying to get something out of this. We're paying money. Come on. You know, I was, I'm poor. Like, you know, I, I grew up with no money, too, and I'm spending $10,000 on some on an education that I'm not even sure if I really want, but I'm taking out a loan to go get it. And, and, and at the same time, like... You know, people are, are not really supportive or, or allowing you to, like, express yourself or, you know, me being the person I am, too, growing up in, like, a Latin kind of background and, you know, I wanted to put chilies in my food and I have these French chefs telling me, no, what are you doing, you know? So it, it was just funny. And, and, and also, like, you know, growing up in the U.S., you're just, there's nothing sacred. Mm. You know, you don't respect certain roots or principles like other cultures do because we don't have the tradition like that you know it's a blessing and a curse because we end up uh you know we end up taking this and doing cool stuff you know that's why we have hollywood that's why we have you know the crazy music scene we do that's why we have all these interesting chefs popping out of the woodworks it's because you know there's no guidelines there's no borders you know so but at the same time it took me to years later to start respecting tradition, respecting like you know, culture, and respecting the roots of things, right? Exactly. Yeah, I mean that that was the base of it too, because they want you to taste. It's like, you know, who puts salt on your food before you, uh, you know, before you try it? You know, you you most people just operate like that in general. You know, they just they're used to putting sugar and milk in their coffee. That's what they're gonna do. They're not even gonna taste the coffee first and be like, oh, oh shit. It's sweet. It's, you know, it's already, you know, we don't need this. We don't need to put this in it. It's not, you know. But I think that was a, it was a good op eye-opening, you know, uh, situation. And it inspired me to kind of like dig into the roots a little bit more. Even if I did get a bad, a bad opportunity or a bad, you know, a bad education in this particular school I won't mention. <laughs> the shower made nameless. Yeah, I don't need to throw people under the bus. So tell me what you did after school then. I mean, literally, I bought my plane ticket to Thailand. Back to Thailand? Yeah, immediately. Why? Because that was the plan. You know, I left Thailand. I went back and said, okay, I got X amount of time. I had a lease on a house. Uh, you know, I needed, to, I needed to stack a little money. I needed a goal. And I knew that I wanted to be in Asia. You know, after the same year, at a young age, going to Europe and, and getting a taste. And then after that, going straight, to, straight out here and being like, whoa. You know, I came straight to Chiang Mai. Oh, wow. Spent two nights in Chiang Mai and then went straight up to Pai. Okay. And this was 14 years ago when, like, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't much. I mean, really, I was 18. I'm 33 now. So, it's, I mean, almost 15 years ago that, you know, Pai wasn't, there wasn't much going on. And it was a very rural community with, you know, with a, a, a live music and art scene and, like, a melting pot of, like, not just, you know, international cultures, but, like, Northern Thailand cultures, you know, Thai, Haka, tribes yeah, Lisu, Lahu, uh, Burm, different Burmese sect, you know, there was like Chan, you know, it was, it was crazy. It was like, uh, it was this interesting melting pot and, and unique place in the world that I was like, all right, I, I got to come back to, I want to learn more about what's going on, like in this part of the world. Europe was cool, but like, this is like another planet. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. 
That's that's really how I felt first time I went to India for sure. It's like what have I stepped into here? This is like nothing I've experienced yeah. before. Yeah. That's what I always say. If you want to visit another planet on Earth, you go to India. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, my first time going to India, I'd never left North America before, and I was 19, and I went to India for a year, and I just I'll never forget. I think I've I probably told this story, but like stepping off that plane in the heat and insanity of Delhi in July and just thinking like getting this insane cab ride to the airport through the streets and thinking, what the fuck have I gotten myself into? <laughs> like, what have I done? I don't think I left the, the hotel for like a day and a half, just like <laughs> trying to come to grips with the... Staring out the window like a crackhead. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> Wanted to go get a samosa. Like, Are they still sure. down there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what were you doing in Thailand when, when you first... Did you start working right away? Or? That was the plan. I, you know, I, I, I like to be busy, you know, so I think that was my goal. Right away, I was like, all right. I'm going to go back out to Thailand. I don't want to get caught up in this, you know, permanent vacation mentality that a lot of people do. You know, I like to be active. Even if I'm, you know, not taking a job, I'm still going to be doing something. But I actually applied for jobs. So I looked into uh, going to work in, in restaurants, you know, different restaurants. I was already, you know, in that in that same year, I moved location from uh, this kind of really popular, uh, interesting you know, I'll name it because it's a cool spot. The Duchambe Tea House in Boulder. It's a, it's all a art installation from Tajikistan. So oh. the whole building's made out of this hand-carved, beautiful art wood. Art, art, like all wood, like, you know, super interesting. It's part of the Naropa Buddhist, you know, university as well. It's a connection through the same uh, owner. And, uh, you know, I met a lot of good people there. It was a cool spot. But the food was like, eh, you know, it was all right. There was some good stuff. But at the same time, it was missing, like certain things so I left that job right when I started culinary school and went to open this five-star hotel you know um and and it was just you know crazy crazy work crazy busy you know a whole different mentality and uh I ended up having you know I was like a, a line cook and you know I, I was essentially doing sous chef sous chef responsibilities so you know I got a good uh a good recommendation from the chef as well when I ended up leaving and you know I, I was like right, I'm gonna take on a job in like a nice hotel in Thailand somewhere I ended up getting a job in Phuket I never took it but you know I applied you know I, I put in my application I spoke to some people they arranged it they said okay you know you uh you can come down here and this time and and you got the job or whatever based you know they're gonna do a working interview but they're it's 80-90% sure. Uh, I had a certain time because there was low season down there when I came, so I had a couple months to kind of like think about it, and I, I pretty much was so burnt out from the, the previous year of just working really hard and, and school at the same time and pushing my, you know, pushing myself to, to do well in that. And, you know, it's also a, a school still, even though it's culinary. I'm not just cutting vegetables and, and learning how to make sauce, you know. It's like studying the you know reading books and doing tests and you know so it was a by the time I got here I was just burnt you know I was so tired that you know I I, I, I hit pie and it was like I, I need to slow down anyway so maybe I'm going to take this opportunity to just sit back and I pretty much did a eight nine months in pie first time wow without doing much besides learning the language culture food you know reading books which I never had time to do before uh, you know, doing things that, you know, slowing down, just slowing my life down a little bit and kind of get a, get some insight 
which was valuable, you know, obviously. It was definitely probably one of the best decisions I did instead of jump right into a, you know, a busy hotel restaurant in Phuket, which is a different world as well, you know. If I think I ended up going to Phuket then or going to these southern spots, it would have been a different experience in, in, for Thailand. Yeah. Because it's, uh, I've still never really spent time down there. Yeah, the south, I think a lot of people don't realize how different the south of Thailand is from the north. I mean, it's it's really kind of, we talk about a different planet. In some ways, it's kind of a different planet up here. And when most people think of, like, I've become, like, I think if there's, like, a tourism board of northern Thailand, like, they need to start sending me money because I've sent more people, like, <laughs> I've recommended northern Thailand to more people and written articles and stuff because it's just such a special place up here and it's so different from the south you know like i think when a lot of people think of coming to thailand they think of you know the world's most beautiful beaches and a lot of really shady sex tourists and stuff and like yeah that stuff is definitely here but you know northern thailand is the the culture's fascinating and the food is like one of the great undiscovered world cuisines really people are starting to wake up to it you know there's there's some people promoting it and doing a good job of, of you know, sharing with the rest of the world, but Definitely. it's still kind of like a well-kept secret, I feel, like Northern Thailand. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's a different lifestyle. I think even people in Bangkok look at look at Thailand as, or look at Chiang Mai and these northern areas, they're like, it's rural, it's a great place if you want to go see some nature, but it's not, uh, you know, it's not, you know, there's, there's nothing going on up there. Right. And it's just starting to really bubble over right now, you know, there's actually... There's actually some movement, you know, but it's definitely, you know, it's tough. It's also tough being here and being involved in, you know, different businesses. It's, it's kind of a crazy, you know, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. It's always two steps forward, at least one back if you're lucky, you know. You don't, you don't go all the way back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so last time I was here, you were telling me about doing more travel and doing some kind of anthropological work around food around the world. I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about that. Like, what what exactly were you doing? <laughs> and, yeah, how, how was that? I think after... <clears throat> so let's rewind a little bit, and then I'll, I'll, I'll speed it up. Um, you know, pretty much after I came out of town, in, it was 2005 when I moved out here for that first year. And, uh, you know, I absorbed some some energy, or I got to, I got to sit back and kind of, like, chill out for a little bit of time to motivate myself to, to continue to travel or to, mm-hmm. you know, go back out and find some crazy jobs and start working. And, you know, that, that at least the four years that followed that, I would constantly move around. You know, I started, I would, I'd be like going back to Europe sometimes. I'm based out in Thailand. I'm going to Laos. I'm going to Vietnam. I'm going to Burma. I'm going to, you know, Indonesia. I'm going to Philippines. I'm going to Japan, China. Like I'm going, I'm bouncing all over the place because it's easy over here. You know, the flights are still cheap. It's, it's, uh, you know, things are accessible. And so I kind of started digging into these different countries out here. And then every year I'd fly back to the States and go work for like, you know, three, three months, something like that in the, in the summer, because that's when, you know, there's extra work, especially in Colorado. You know, I, I was running a friend's catering company every summer. I'd step in and help him really, like, you know, uh, push it, doing big wedding parties and things like that. So that was kind of my income, mm-hmm. you know. And then I come back over here and kind of uh, use it as a, you know, use it as a 
is a resting point and then ended up getting involved in a little bar project in, in Pi as well. We opened this little kind of mu- music bar, uh, a fun spot. That was like 2006, 2007. Monkey Magic. Shout out Monkey Magic. Hashtag <laughs> <laughs> Monkey Magic. Yeah, which turned into, you know, now it's one of my best friends. He's got the tattoo studio. Okay. So up in Pi, still Monkey Magic tattoo. You know, talented guy. But... Um, yeah, but I mean, pretty much bouncing back and forth, it, you you start to realize that the you start making connections. You know, you start seeing, hey, why am I eating like a donor in like northern Vietnam? You know, why you know why are we having these like why is there like a cheese culture, baguettes in Laos? Why is there, you know, where did all these things come from? You know, what, what's this like Indian influence, Malay and and. And, uh, you know, down to like, you know, Portuguese desserts in Thailand and, and, you know, ingredient wise. And you start seeing these crossovers of similarities in food and, and, you know, food and how they eat the food and how it's presented, how it's prepared, tools, technique. You know, so I I started kind of like uh, getting more and more fascinated with connecting dots. And, uh, you know, it's three, four years of bouncing back and forth. Every year I go back to the States, I go to Mexico, too. And Mexico's still like one of my favorite places in the world. You know, it's a, a spot that I've always been to since I was a kid. It's, you know, I grew up in a Mexican community in, in Colorado. I was like the only white family in this whole apartment complex. I went to like a bilingual school when I was young. Uh, I started working in kitchens where I was surrounded by El Salvadorians and Mexicans and this whole Latin culture, which, you know, inspired me to dig into m- more of that. Uh, you know, and then it just popped one day. I said, you know, if I want to keep traveling, I better, I better do something with it. You know, I can't just go back and forth all the time. And, you know, it's kind of a, I'm scattered. You know, you're not going to, you're not going to really lay it down and, and have a foundation in life if you're just nomadic like that. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm still nomadic, even though I'm settled down, which, uh, you know, it's tough, but it works. But the year that I got super serious, you know, I was back in Colorado and, uh, I decided to, to, you know, stay put. It was the only year that I've lived in the States in the last, you know, 14, 15. And I decided to stay there for one whole year and just work. You know, I was running my friend's uh, catering company and then I was doing some, you know, bunch of side work just to make some money. And then in the meantime, I was studying and planning this trip that I was going to go bounce around the world and study, you know, essentially culinary anthropology. I was like, I want to put together a book. I want the book to be easy to digest from like a, a, a normal person's point of view. It doesn't need to be like, you know, super heady or, or, you know, educational perspective, but more of a humble perspective of like why we eat what we eat, how closely the world is connected and, and you know, dissecting these dishes and, and food, you know. So I think that was the... You know, that was, that was like uh, this epiphany. I was like, boom, you know, just like, all right, this is what I want to do. You know, I want to produce, like, I want to educate. I want to go out there and get the information. And then I want to share that with the world and, like, let people know, hey, you know, these people are, like, hating on their neighbors when they're the same people. And, like, you know, we're, we're talking about the connections of, like, you know, Moors and Berbers with, like, you know, Europe. You know, without them, you know, Sicily and, and Andalusia and, and different parts of Spain. The You know, it's like that's all comes, the ar- agriculture, the architecture, the, you know, technique down to the, the pots, the pans. You know, it's uh, a lot of the stuff is, you know, taken for granted or, like, you know, people people don't think about it anymore. So, I, you know, that year I was like, I'm, I'm moving. 
Like I set an itinerary. I, I got a friend to go with me who's a journalist. Uh, you know, we booked plane tickets, at least 30, I think we booked in advance. Uh, we hit five continents, uh, 25 countries, I think that year we did. We only ended up documenting about 19 because it was pretty, pretty intense. Only 19. <laughs> Jesus. I'm exhausted just hearing about that. Yeah. So how long did this trip take? Just under one year. Well, tell me a little bit about it. <laughs> Sure, that would take hours, but yeah, I mean, it was yeah. There's a it's a it was a it was a big year, man. But you know, to we started in Mexico. You know, I went to places that I considered food meccas. Right. So I went to places that I think like influenced the world in one way or another. You know why we eat what we eat, and like you know, pretty much just places that blown me away, and, and places that obviously are like you know, very unique. I mean, Mexico being one of them because it's, you know, it's been, it's been at the center of uh, the culinary world for a long time. People don't realize that, you know, people don't even know Mexican food unless you've been to Mexico. It's one of those things too. Like, you know, you don't know Thai food unless you've been to Thailand because it's really hard to, you know, what is Thai food? You know, there's so many different regions and micro regions and, and different ingredients that don't thrive or haven't been grown anywhere else. And, you know, so, you know, we started in Mexico and, dug into that talked about you know the spanish talked about pre pre uh, europe history obviously pre-europeans you know which is the interesting history as well because you know the the mayans and then the toltecs and the aztecs and you know they were like developed and sophisticated you know cooks and people who were you know knew their flavor and knew their ingredients and you know birthplace of maize corn uh, chocolate um Birthplace of chocolate? Yeah, vanilla. Wow. wow. Uh, a I lot, didn't know that. A lot of interesting stuff come, you know, tomatoes are like kind of a, they're still trying to figure it out, but tomatoes are right around there as well. You know, between Peru and Mexico, there's a, there's so much that happened. Yeah. You know, Peru's birthplace of potatoes, chilies, and not just Peru, Bolivia, the Andes. I mean, there used to be no borders back then, so it's hard to, you know, say, but it's, uh, you know, very influential places. And then after Mexico, Peru, which for me was like, it made sense, you know, I was like, I peruse also one of the places that's like so unique. It has the most microclimates out of anywhere in the world, they say, uh, from the desert to the Andes, to the south, to the north, you know, it's got a, obviously a huge influence of food. It's got a crazy history with the Italians, with the Spanish, uh, the geographic like layout of it as well is very interesting. So things were like hidden and kept kind of secret as well. Um, you know, second largest Japanese population outside of Japan. Uh, today. Yeah. I didn't know that. One of the largest uh, Chinese populations outside of China. Wow. I mean, their national dish, Lomo Sataro, which is like a, a great example of like, we talk about fusion. This is like what, this is what's been happening. Fusion's been happening, but it's not something that you just throw on a plate in, in 30 seconds and say it's, you know, a mix of, of mm -hmm. different cultures because it's can be an insult. <laughs> but, you know, Lomo Sataro is like a, a beef stir fry with these like, they use yuca or different kinds of potato. I think it's normally like potato. They're almost like fry, French fries, you know? And then uh, there's like a rice pilaf cooked with corn in it. And it's like hominy, like the hominy, like the big uh, choclo, like the big corn. So it's so funny. It's like, you know, you got this rice. Just that right there is ironic because rice is like, obviously, a, it comes from like the Yangtze in China. You know, the short grain, the long grain, like the, they believe the domesticated versions of rice we eat today are all from China. And uh, 
you have this dish of like a rice pilaf with corn cooked into it, which is like corn's obviously like a big staple of you know Latin American cuisine because it's a you know the 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 Mayans and you know further on that all Aztecs, Toltecs believe you know men are made of men are made of corn. You know it's the it's like the spiritual background like corn is god you know it's like that's what like wheat in the roman times or like you know rice in china there's a big respect of what feeds you you know they're fermenting it they're making you know they're making sakes or sojus and you know their egyptians were making beer with wheat you know it's like it's the grain that sustains you know it's the the one thing that that kept people alive so you know it was a uh, yeah it was interesting and what are you guys what are you guys actually doing when you're in when you're doing this research are you interviewing people or are you just walking around and eating and reading books or like you know that was the thing it depended it depends because you know it was it was one of those ambitious things you know i was maybe it's almost yeah i was like in mid mid 20s you know so i was like i'm gonna go around the world i want to like i want to get as much information as possible you know and a lot of people were like what's the what's the end goal how are you making money? And I was like, uh, you know, the thing is that we haven't thought about that. You know, it was all about collecting information. You know, it was all about connecting with people and collecting information and then putting, you know, putting stuff behind us that we can figure out what we want to do with it in the future. You know, some places were easier than others because we had connections. You know, in Peru, we were hanging out with, like, the gastronomy founder of Peru and, like, you know, Anton Gaston. And, like, you know, we went to Central in, uh, in Lima, which was, like, we didn't even, it was a kind of a random occurrence. We were staying with this uh, group of chefs who took us around and introduced us to all their, you know, what was going on. I mean, Central is number four in the world right now and in top restaurants, you know. It's, a, it's also, you know, amazing, amazing spot. But we went there because they had a Pisco collection that was... You know, Love yeah, it was uh, the apparently one of the largest Pisco collections in Peru at the time. So we were like, okay, we'll go check this out and did a whole tasting and they broke it down. And, you know, Pisco being a distillation of, of grapes and, you know, coming from Europe and you find it in these places. It's always interesting to dissect these things that aren't necessarily native of the of the land. But, you know, how did they get there? You know, that same trip in Peru, we were working with natural geographic writers and, you know, different crazy people who were taking us around Cusco and showing us their, you know, heirloom, uh, quinoa plantations and, you know, just, uh, you know, collecting information, taking photos, interviewing people, doing video. Uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of it's never really been used. You know, I had a website up the whole time. I was doing kind of a blog about it called Urban Cuisine Tour. Uh, the name might not match the concept, but back then it was kind of the idea to hit hit the urban areas because you go to the city, you can get a taste of the whole country. Mm. You know, it's where everyone migrates from every corner to to make to make a living. So you know, and then from there we just kept moving. You know, it was like Argentina after that because it's such a weird place. No offense to all my Argentinian <laughs> friends, but it's just a strange because it was uh, it's so European. You know, and, and, you know, when they, when the Spanish arrived and then later on the Italians and Germans and, you know, a lot of the different uh, European cultures kind of uh, took over Argentina because the the natives there in the Pampas were very nomadic. You know, they weren't people that were easily, you know, easy to deal with, apparently. And, uh, I mean, you know, who knows, but 
they there was some of the biggest genocides occurred in those areas. Yeah. So it was also very, you know, it's sad. But then at the same time, it's it, you know these things happen and it gives birth to a whole other thing. And uh, you know it was, it was it was crazy to see. You know it was like uh, going to like a a version of Europe and South America, and then on the outsides of different areas. I mean, unless you go up north in Argentina or south, you know, there's still a lot of cool cultures and, you know, there's a, but it was just interesting to see like very like Italian, like we're like, I feel like I'm in Naples, you know, and and, and then at the same time, you don't really see much uh, different skin tones and, and, you know, and then after that it was Brazil because, uh, you know, Brazil's first, it's, it's an amazing place, but then it's also a, a, one of the biggest melting pots of the world still, you know, it's got a crazy history, and, you know, it's also where, you know, 70, 80% of the slaves came through in, in the Bahia, and, you know, so there's, like, food up there that's, like, nothing else, you know, you got Yoruba African food up in Bahia that's, like, you know, so unique, so interesting, you got, uh, then, then down in the south, in the Pampas, and, in, you know, Sao Paulo, and then up in, like, Mina Greiras, like, that area outside of Rio was, like, that's where all the mining happened, you know, so that was where the money was coming, that's where all the wealthy people were at, and it was definitely a, uh, you know, it was a crazy, you know, it was a crazy spot. And I gotta get to Brazil, because I feel like Brazilians have figured some really important things out about life, like, they're, they're having a good time, you know what I mean? Well, they just the music and and the food and and the the spirit of the people is just you know I'm of course this is crazy generalization I'm making but yeah I, I, that's that's high on my list I got to get over there because like yeah I feel like they figured some they're having a good time you know yeah definitely yeah. I think they've been through so much too that you know yeah. once you go over the once you go over the hump you know there's no other you know once you're in the once you're at the bottom too there's nowhere else to go that's but up. So true. Yeah. So, so, many, so many times, like when you're traveling, it seems like the happiest people you meet are the people with the least over and over. It's true. It's true. That's why it's good. That's why traveling's uh, awesome too. You know, it's uh, I always say it's like. I mean, it's perspective. You know, I always I always joke, but it's serious. Like perspective is God, right? Because it's like that's everything. You know, without perspective, we're missing all these all these points, and all it takes is one trip to the slum. Or one, you know, one day trip to the favela and you're eating with these guys, these like, you know, gangsters or these like, you know, these people who just like live in and they're happy. And then next thing you're in Manhattan and people are depressed and, you know, and then, you know, it's just, yeah, perspective is crazy. I like that a lot. Perspective is God. <laughs> that deserves to be on a bumper sticker or something. That's great. <laughs> so after, uh, did you head to Europe then? Yeah, that same trip, you know, it was uh, part of the connection to go from new world to old world. If I wasn't already in the new world, then I, I you know, maybe we would have gone old world to new. But since I'm a new world person, we went the we went the other direction. Um, yeah, we went straight from Brazil to Lisboa in Portugal. So it was a it was a good connection, you know. It was a a perfect way to do this. You had to go to Portugal, Portugal after Brazil. Yeah, you know, and then after that we did, you know, we stayed in Lisboa, but it was a shock because we were in like, it was like wintertime, but that means it's summertime in Brazil. So it was like 114 degrees, you know, it was like in the 40s in Celsius. It was like kind hot. Like kind of like this kitchen. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it was hot as, it was hot as fuck. Yeah. And uh, we left Bahia too, which is even hotter. So we left Bahia in like 114 degrees. 
you know, 42 or something like that. And then we went straight to Lisboa in winter with, like, snow on the ground. So, like, the first day we're, like, shocked, you know, I'm, like, all stoked to go be eating some uh, classic uh, baculao and, like, all these, like, you know, classic Portuguese dishes and things that I've seen spread out through, you know, uh, Brazilian culture as well. So, I was, like, all right, you know, but but it was, like, a, a weather shock and just, like, <laughs> like, the first couple of days we were all dying, but, you know, we got over it and, and we ended up digging into the culture there. Uh, you know the the respect for the sea and and the classical you know approach to a lot of Mediterranean not even Mediterranean but you know this part of Europe as well is about ingredients so just people highlighting and respecting ingredients and and not putting a you know too much of a twist on it you know not over seasoning things you know just a you know a basic approach very classical italian and a lot of you know a lot of people they don't if you have something good you know you just salt it maybe a little white wine uh you got some grilled bread you know little little classic classic dishes did you did you get to uh africa at some point in this trip this trip only northern africa and uh you know pretty much we only in morocco and it was on the it was on the map you know a lot of things were like you know, it's hard to do as much as we did in a year anyway. And it was also like, I feel like Africa's a whole nother world. So it was almost like I wanted to go get around everything else and then like go back to that because Africa's even like, you know, the pre, you know, pre all this, you know, there's a lot. At the same time, there was stuff going on in, in various parts of the world. Africa already been through a, a revolution in a sense, you know, they had a lot, a lot of changes and a lot of influence in the modern, you know, the modern world of food and, you know, birthplace of people you know it's uh it's interesting you know it's it's weird though this is kind of a side note but it's odd to me how how a lot of african cuisines don't seem to get the respect the recognition or the exposure that they deserve like in most major cities like you'll find indian restaurant for sure thai restaurant for sure but maybe a french restaurant but name an african restaurant like it seems like there's not as i mean I went to university in Ottawa, which is where I got exposed to African food because there was a really good Ethiopian Ethiopian restaurant that was kind of like a gateway drug to me for like exploring more African foods. But yeah, it's weird. Like there aren't more African restaurants around the world. You know, it's mostly probably just ignorance because I think they're there in a lot of sense to, you know, I go back to New York every year as well. And there's, you know, there's all these it's not just African, it's like, this is Swahili and, you know, different parts of, you know, this, obviously Ethiopia, I think, has always kind of had a buzz in the food world. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they have amazing food and, and it's also like, you know, yeah, the big, a big influence, but uh, yeah, I think it's just an ignorance, man, and I think they're next on the list, probably, yeah. for places to pop. I think they already are popping a little bit. People are already starting to, to realize and, and, you know... They're they're getting it because there's some great cuisines and you know throughout throughout Africa yeah. yeah for sure did so did you end up in Asia then is that where you yeah. finished this tour yeah. where um we went a couple places you know but uh you know after real quick you know after Portugal Spain Morocco Italy Greece Turkey and then. You know, a couple stops in between for more pleasure. You know. Okay, let's pause for one minute. Yeah. I'm obsessed with Greek food. What What was Greece like? <laughs> I, you know, I love Greece. It's one of my favorite places too because of the history and just. Uh, oh, fascinating. 
they have a very clean approach to food as well. And uh, I think they... What do you mean by clean? You know, it's balanced and, and, and it's all... I mean, clean in the sense of like, there's not a lot of... It's it's like obviously seafood based in a sense. You know they use a lot of different uh, you know fishes and braises, and then you know there's some pastas and, and different things as well. But it's it's more like you know it's a very like in my opinion you know it's a it's a healthier food mm-hmm. out of the regions because it's also a, a out of the Mediterranean. But they all have their own their own little you know twist on things. But there's all also it's a huge melting pot of the world from you know starting back with the facetians and people will just. You know, bounce all over the place, and and uh, you know it's it's such a melting pot of food that it's hard to tell. Like you see things that are like, you know, is that Turkish? Is that you know right. that looks like it could be Italian? It's like you even know. just geographically, it's at a really interesting you know kind of crossroad crossroads yeah. location. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. But I mean, you know, I, th- I think it's like a healthy, you know, very clean food in the sense of like, you know, you always get these like different kinds of salads, and you know, there's they, there's not much, uh, you know, they don't. I have no problem with you know fatty foods as well. I like I like everything you know. It's and I think I think a lot of like old cultures balanced it well. You know nowadays people just don't know how to eat because there's no education behind it. You know there's and there's abundance of of stuff that you know people there's just overconsumption and and you know people not wanting to be even in, you know educated. They don't even care. But you know olive oil, wine, olives. Uh, you know, different, you know, they, they, even their breads there, you know, a lot of them are in, in a traditional manner of like, you know, fermentations and like, you know, kind of sourdoughs and natural, you know, whole, whole grain, whole germ, you know, wheats and stuff that, you know, people don't do this kind of stuff anymore. And, and who knows if they're still, it's probably losing its culture as well because of the whole world is, but at the same time, they still, you know, there's still a history there. And when there's a history, people, you know, they stick to it even if they don't know. It's condition. They're conditioned to continue on the to respect the tradition. Yeah. yeah. So after I cut you off, but you no you ended up in Asia. Yeah. We, actually, you know, first thing is we flew to Thailand because okay. I already had roots. You know, and and uh, it was also a, a you know a quick R and R. You know, we needed to we needed to take a break after all that, and you know we came up north and, and kind of just rented a house and used it as a as a kind of a jump off, which we weren't doing in other places. So we were, you know, we were moving constantly, and you know out here is easier to rent a spot and then go somewhere, come back, go somewhere, yeah. come back. And you know, honestly, I wanted to hit a lot of places when I was out here. Uh, there's a lot of places that are influential, and and I thought was uh, you know necessary. But I did a whole you know whole trip around Thailand as well, so to kind of document the Southeast Asian cuisines, and then talk about the you know the influence of you know different parts of of Asia in general. You know, the Yunnan Chinese and the you know the the Malay and the you know the you know, during the royal, royal cuisine period in Thailand, too, they would literally take stuff from... They were inviting chefs and people from all over to bring it, bring their most famous dishes. Or, you know, uh, they were also borrowing things from people and figuring out how to... You know, Pad Thai being, like, you know, a Thai version of a stir-fry. And a lot of, like, the wok dishes, like Pak Pao. And, like, you know, all these dishes are, like, very Chinese, you know, in, in technique. And, and then, uh, you know, then you have, like, the Isan, you know, section and, like, north, you know, north east up here in the north as well it's a whole nother influence of like kind of a you know burmese which is bangladeshi which is you know northern indian which you know there's a long 
influence and then the ingredients you know the lemongrasses and the galangalas and the kefir lime and the things that are like you know big natives to this area that stand out you know the fact that there's coconut and these things got introduced into you know dishes that weren't never had that before and you know mountainous uh, himalayan cuisine and you know like cow soy for for instance you know having a you know coconut was never part of it you know egg noodles were never part of it it was like turmeric you know uh, it was it was a old you know an old dish that that's probably changed you know so much that we can barely recognize what the original is but it's uh you know it was interesting and then after that china you know, so we did. I did you two. Spent a lifetime. <sighs> you know, that's why. That's why I think I got overwhelmed because at the end, <laughs> yeah. at the end of it, well, the two we did at the end was China and India. Wow. So I, I did two months in each. Yeah. And yeah. to try to do like a whole crazy country like that in two months, and and try to do the best you could about you know picking pieces out and 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 hitting places that are influential like i didn't even you know i didn't even know where to start in china like a lot of people would would question where i went because it's like where do you go when you're trying to like document chinese cuisine like i would have been really cool to go up to like you know north 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 and then be cool to go like you know central where a lot of like the you know kind of the same idea of rural cuisine or some of the cuisine was birthed but you know we ended up in shanghai First, you know, it was a good place to fly in. Uh, met one of my friends who's, you know, been living there a long time, and we did a little quick tour of regional cuisine in Shanghai to give me a give me an introduction. And then uh, this was my first trip to China too, so other place I've been before. Mm. You know, like that was my second trip to Greece. You know, third trip to Spain. Like, you know, twenty uh, something trip to you know Mexico. Uh, so it was it was you know my first trip. So it was. It was intense, and then we ended up taking a train from Shanghai to to Chengdu, you know, which is one of the best food cities in the world. Yeah. Oh my God, yeah. it's that, like the heart of Sichuan cuisine, and it's yeah. I love Chengdu. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was the highlight, indeed. I love. What's the name of the uh, the peppercorn that numbs your mouth? Yeah, I mean the Sichuan peppercorn. Yeah, yeah. Those, you know, the mala. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, they got crazy food, and it's just like one of those areas in China that's a, a gateway because it was, you know, it's the Southern uh, Silk Road, the Horse Tea Road, you know, Zen Buddhism, uh, you know, this this chili culture that's still like unexplained. You know, I I a lot of people believe that obviously the the Europeans brought chilies, you know, Portuguese brought chilies to Thailand, and you know this uh, this path because they were the ones that were you know, traveling and dispersing ingredients, but, uh, or whatever they were doing, colonizing and, and leaving stuff behind. But, uh, you know, I'm a firm believer and I think a lot of people would back me. And we know for a fact that, you know, the Chinese were in, in South America first. And they're also, you know, after the Chinese explored the world and, and mapped a lot of it out, they came back and they, you know, they literally burnt their fleets of ships they closed their borders down you know they didn't share the information it wasn't documented in the same sense i mean i'm sure it is somewhere but you know they definitely they definitely brought a lot of stuff back and we're spreading it around that part because there's like wild corn growing up there there's been chilies in you know in in their cuisine for a long time yeah i think and i think i could be wrong about this but i feel like i was reading an article not long ago that basically said that more and more historians are becoming sympathetic to that theory. I don't know much about it at all, but 
It's really interesting. Well, they won't, you know, they're not, uh, they're not cocky like white people are. <laughs> and they literally, you know, that, that's the basis of it. You know, they <laughs> kind of, you know, they, they literally, there's a lot of information. There's a lot of, you know, and there's a lot of crazy stuff that we don't even, you know, the, that people don't even talk about. You know, the fact like the Vikings, you know, the Vikings were crossing over a long time ago. Yeah, you there's know? evidence of that, I believe, in uh, in the extreme east of Canada, in Newfoundland. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Which is, yeah. Yeah. They're finding, like, skulls of, like, seven-foot-something, like, redhead, like, Viking dudes from, you know, way before anyone else came over. Imagine but you're one of those guys washing up on your shore. You're just around the teepee <laughs> having a good time, and then, whoa. <laughs> I can only imagine. And then also birds. Migration. Uh, you know, there, there's points that... You know, historians are trying to figure out how certain things travel between New and Old World before there was, you know, this movement. And uh, there was evidence that birds were, were, when they were migrating across, they were bringing, you know, they were shitting out chili seeds and they were growing in parts of Africa. Because that makes the most sense, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then who knows, once they grew there, did they spread this? Did somebody bring a seed up there? It's like, you know, once they hit land land paths, it's a different story. They kind of moved in, in a different way, but... You know, I think there's a boom in a sense, and then uh, you know people adapted it because before there was chilies in Africa, you know they still had this this bold cuisine, but they were using different versions of peppercorns and and different herbs that had this same similar spices to them, but not nothing like chilies. You know, chilies were like sacred. You know, chilies were like the gods as well. You know, in in Peru, I have a book over there, uh, all about the spirituality and and origin of chilies. It's all in Spanish, but. Wow. You know, in Peru, because it's like they still, they still, they have a respect for chilies, and uh, you know, yeah, it's it's a melting pot. So jumping ahead a little bit, after you complete this gargantuan food tour around the world, I mean, I want to ask you what did you learn, but I imagine that that would take up a hell of a lot of time to explain. But well, what 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 do you feel like you learned? How did that experience change you? What do I feel like I achieved from it? Yeah. I mean, really, it was, uh, you know, the, the whole goal, like I said, was to, you know, accumulate knowledge and information and just kind of like, you know, take it. I wanted to produce a book. I want to do a, you know, a coffee table book or something that was, you know, informational and, you know, fun at the same time and kind of like you let people know, you know, what's going on in the world, connecting the world through food and connecting people through food. Um, you know, it was intense. So, you know, after that year, I kind of like I needed a break. Uh, you know, a chef not really being in a kitchen for a long time too was complicated. So I was like, all right, I need to, I need to get back in the in that world. You know, I want to pick up my knives again. And I was like, you know, after all that information and not being able to cook, was like, you know, something I really needed to do. Can I pause you again? Yeah. So I'm I love cooking, but I'm sure not a chef. But I think like I'm I'm a musician. And if I haven't played guitar in a while, and I'll pick up the guitar, it'll take me a day or two or three to kind of get the feel back and to start feeling really comfortable again. Is it anything like that when you're a chef? Like if you take too long away, is getting back into it difficult? I mean, for sure. It just depends. Even just like your, your muscle reflexes and stuff, I would imagine, in the kitchen, right? Yeah, that, that more than anything, I would say, just movement, you know, figuring out, like, are you working on a line? Are you working in a, you know, in a restaurant? Or are you cooking at home? I mean, it's organic in a sense of, of, you know, 
being able to cook something again and picking up a knife and you know that's i don't think you'll ever really lose that but you know if you're actually working in a in a kitchen in a restaurant you know then then you definitely got to get uh you got to get re-acclimated or you'll just you know people will just be spinning circles around you so is that what you did after the tour you started working in a kitchen again no i mean that that same year i i i had plans i still had stuff in colorado because i was the last time i stayed there and my plan was to move back here after that and uh, actually it was all about the the coffee business because my dad was developing the roasters uh, I see. when i came and used like, Thailand, like the actual machine the machines, coffee roasters. yeah the machines he was developing and built the first one so you know this roaster over here was the first one that got built around six something years ago and when i was uh using thailand as a base as a, as a jump point you know, it was there, and I started using it, and, and you know, I'm... Why a, did your dad build a coffee roaster? Good question. <laughs> I mean, it goes, you know, there's a little more uh, information on, on the website, you know, on Left Hand Roasters. Uh, it talks about, you know, the fact that Thai, Thai coffee was introduced into Thailand as an alternative crop to opium. You know, it's part of the Which ro- is fascinating yeah, in itself. Yeah, yeah, part I of couldn't ro- believe when I, when I realized that. Yeah. I mean, a lot of things, too. Cacao and, and other, uh, you know, cash crops that could be an alternative to opium were introduced here. You know, it was a UN project. It was a, you know, the the, the king got involved, obviously. That's why it's, you know, named after him as well. Um, you know, it was, it was interesting. There was a lot of history and there was a lot of people who needed help. So there's coffee growing all over the place. You know, all over Northern Thailand, people were planting coffee and growing coffee, and they're not allowed to grow this crop that they've been growing for a long time that was making them a lot of money, or at least, you know, some people making more money than other people, depending on what their position was. And uh, people didn't know how to get rid of it. People didn't know how to process it. People didn't know how to, you know, roast it. People didn't know, you know, how to extract it. You know, in the even five, six years ago, coffee was, you know, horrible up here you know there wasn't many people doing it right you know 10 years ago there's there's good coffee being grown but it was all being exported mm-hmm. you know and exported on a, on a level that wasn't as nearly as profitable as is it's a lot of stuff and definitely not as profitable as, as opium yeah. <laughs> you know so <laughs> not I, many things are yeah well that's yeah it's true but uh, i think that was a big you know a big point too as we saw this good coffee being grown and, and and my dad was already getting into it you know coffee is a you know it's for nerds man it's for geeks who yes it is <laughs> you know it's it's for people who want to get deep into something and try to try to understand it which you know m- might never happen and you'll just be caffe- caffeinated out all right i want to talk about coffee in one minute but yeah. before that i want to know so for anyone listening to this i met dustin because he owns the best mexican restaurant in thailand and it's in kind of the middle of nowhere in this town called pai in the hills of northern thailand it's called cafe sito how did that happen you know that's the same thing it's i came back out here to that same year i ended the trip i didn't even make it around the world you know i I left you know two months in china boom 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 yunnan back over actually went to nepal to study the himalayan food so i did a i did a month in nepal to to i wanted to talk about you know mountainous cuisine that's a big huge part of of why we eat what we eat in this part of the world Mm -hmm. and then uh and then i did two months in india you know right after i was done with my trip i planned to fly back to colorado and instead i you know got a wedding invitation ended up in germany again ended up back in europe ended up in new york after that colorado after that 
packed up all my stuff, decided I'd come back out here and, and work with my dad on developing the roasters and actually turning this into a business, the coffee. Uh, my dad's, he, you know, he's scientific as well, so there's no business. I was like, what are you doing? He's like, I had like one ton of coffee. Literally, he bought one ton of coffee in his house and he had this roaster and he just like, he's doing everything but business. But, you know, he's just like, he was roasting, he was selling stuff, but he like, he, you know, needed to get organized. So, you know, I came out to help with that and that's kind of where Cafecito came into place. And uh, I think I got, you know, taken over with my desire to get back in the kitchen. And that's also why I opened, uh, you know, Silhouette in Reverie Siam. You know, I was, uh, that was the first, you know, big culinary project I probably ever did on my own. Uh, being a you know executive chef and partner and you know of this little boutique kind of a uh, five-star resort up in the jungle on the river uh, it was very cool you know building everything from scratch and at the same time I, I opened my own company so I needed something to kind of uh, it needed to it needed to run so I, I did cafecito you know and, and I was doing coffee already I wanted to do something else that took me kind of to my roots so I said okay I'm gonna do a Mexican brunch what's good with coffee yeah. you know brunch food and, and i don't want to do normal brunch food i'm going to do mexican brunch you know i'm going to do chilequiles and huevos rancheros and you know smothered uh breakfast things and you know tortas and um, yeah. yeah it's legit man yeah that would that i was immediately curious about who set up this place when i went in there i'm like this is like amazing mexican food in the middle of <laughs> northern thailand uh, it was, it, you know, it was tough because we couldn't, we had to make everything from scratch and, you know, I started growing my own chilies and, you know, doing, doing stuff that most people wouldn't do, but you're trying to, it's, that, that's the beauty of food in general. Like we're talking about culinary anthropology and, and, you know, this is what happens that, you know, 30 years from now, there could be people putting, you know, habaneros in there. And there's sometimes, and you know, yep. <laughs> using different ingredients that you know were once planted here by somebody crazy like myself who wanted to see you know different kinds of, you know, Mexican chilies being grown here, and then they might evolve into something else bigger than we can even think. Let's <laughs> let's uh, stay on coffee then, or go back to coffee rather. I've been thinking about this a lot, particularly over the past few years, taking things that I do every day and just trying to make them a lot better. So like, I forget who told me, I think it was my, my grandfather, but when I was a kid, he's like, you know, when you have the money, like invest in like good shoes, for example, cause you're going to wear those things every day and like take care of your feet. It's something you do every day. Why not make it good? Yeah. Buy a nice pillow. You go to bed every night, you know, things like that. And I'd say over the past six months to a year, I've started doing that with coffee. Mm. I'd always loved coffee. Um, I have coffee every day. Um, but uh, particularly in the past six months, I say like, I'm really trying to make my coffee experience better. So I grind my own beans now. Uh, I'm way snobbier with the beans I buy. Uh, I bought an AeroPress. I got, I just got a pour over coffee thing. I'm really trying to like, and I'm, I'm I, you know, you said coffee's for nerds, like a hundred percent. It's like, once you go down that, start going down that rabbit hole, it's really easy to kind of get obsessed and reading more and all these, you know, super geeky coffee blogs and stuff. Um, what drew you to coffee and tell me about left-hand roasters you know i wasn't i wasn't a huge coffee person before that i mean i used it as a you know like a lot of people use it as a you know is a is a motivational you know is is caffeine you know yeah. is a is is something you need to consume in in the day or i didn't drink it every day as well i try not to 
I try not to overdo anything in life, so, you know, in moderation and in moderation. And uh, I think what really got me into it was just, you know, seeing my dad build this roaster and then starting to taste and experiment with roasting. Because it's, you know, first coffee is one of the most complicated. We could probably say this without, you know, maybe some people out there might, might, might question this, but it's the most complicated plant in the world because it has more aromatic elements than anything else. So, you know, that means the complexity of it. I mean, even that statement, it's kind of hard to get your head around. And even I'm still trying to figure out, like, what does that mean? What's an aromatic element? You know, uh, it, it essentially means that depending on how you take it, how it's processed, fermented, grown, you know, the different varietal, down to the roasting, down to the extraction, uh, you know, you can get all these different, you know, senses out of it and aromas. And, you know, when you have the green beans, you start getting, you know, you get these really like floral, grassy, uh, you know, nutty, sweet, you know, and then you could even break them down and further and be like, oh, lemongrass or like, you know, vanilla, um, you know, strawberries and, you know, currant and, you know, guava and passion fruit. And, you know, there's there's all these like similarities in coffee that remind you to other things. And I think that's what it, the most interesting thing about aromatics in general is the fact that all those senses, aromatics, you know, are connected to your memory and connected to your sense. And, you know, they'll bring you back somewhere. Oh, I used to eat rhubarb uh, pie when I was a kid, and I, I tasted this like, you know, honey. Or you'll, you'll be drinking a cup of coffee, and there'll be like a subtle note in it that yeah. reminds you of something else, right? Exactly. I mean, yeah. it's like food too. You'd be eating something. It's like anything that you consume or you smell before. I mean, wine. You know, uh, like we, you know, t- talked about before a little bit. Wine is really the gateway to coffee for me because I've always been fascinated with wine in the same sense too. Because it's all about the terroir. You know, it's all about the land. It's like what water was the plant. You know, f- what what was the what was the water in the area? What was the air like? What was the you know the minerality in the in the soil? Um, you know, what else? What else influenced it or what else, you know, changed There's it? There's so many variables, right? Yeah. The natural, you know, natural yeast in the air, or like, you know, there's like natural wines and or biodynamic. That's why they're coming back into style right now because you're tasting, you know, the terroir, which is pretty much you're tasting, you're going to a place through taste, through right. aromatics. You know, you're literally taking like this, this vacation to another spot by consuming something. You know, and that's why coffee is interesting, too. And that's why I really want to see Thai coffee, you know, leave Thailand more. Mm. And uh, my project, you know, Left Hand Roasters, um, it's something I, I kind of always wanted to do. You know, I'm calling it community conscious Thai coffee because the whole idea is to big up the community uh, through the processors, the, you know, obviously the farmers, the processors. Uh, I'm doing the roasting, but I also want to connect and collaborate with other roasters, which I, you know, I do. There's a lot of amazing people up here, you know, Lee from Akama and like uh, Lalita from Omnia and, you know, uh, Pong from Ponganese and, you know, Tave, you know, Graf and, you know, T, you know, there's all sorts of cool people who are doing like, uh, you know, doing justice, you know, giving, get, representing, and they're Thai, you know, so once again, you know, I don't want to be, uh, I'm not trying to take the light, but I want to, you know, I'm trying to get it some recognition. And, and like, I, I, I don't think we mentioned this before, but yeah, for anyone listening, like the, the coffee scene in Northern Thailand is just exploding right now. Yeah. But again, most of the rest of the world doesn't know about it, right? 
we take it for granted that Chiang Mai has, I would argue, one of the best cafe scenes in the world. Yes. I mean, it's astonishing yes. the, the number and quality of amazing cafes in beautiful locations and the consistently jaw-dropping quality of the actual beans and, yes. and the coffee itself. I mean, it's, it's astounding. And again, it's one of these really well-kept secrets. So, I mean, what is, why do you think more people don't know about Northern Thai coffee. Do you think it's, it's simply because it's so new? Yeah. I mean, multiple reasons, you know. Uh, definitely because it's so new. I would consider this to be the newest and up-and-coming. I mean, it is. It's like the newest and most, uh, you know, on, you know, people people don't know yet. Like Southeast Asia in general. I mean, Burma, Laos, Thailand, Vietnam, you know, they all have their own unique qualities to it. And, you know, five years ago, I'd go back to the States. I'm in San Francisco. I'm popping into Blue Bottle, Sight Glass. Uh, I'm up in Portland checking out Heart and checking out Stumptown. And I'm in New York hanging out with the Brooklyn Roasters and, you know, uh... Uh, you know, a lot of these guys I, I like to visit over there and no, everyone's like, Thai coffee? Right. You know, five years ago, what? You know, four years ago, maybe? You know, three years ago, some people? <laughs> Two years ago, oh, yeah, you're from Chiang Mai? And so now, it's slowly starting. Uh, now people know. Now people are starting to know. And, and people who are like coffee geeks are definitely like, I'm interested. You know, I'm getting emails all the time. I'm trying to figure out how I can send roasted coffee around because people are like, we want some of that, you know, some of that interesting uh, Thai coffee over here. And, and it, it's a novelty, you know, it's a specialty thing to get, you know, to consume something somewhere else. And as much as I'm about sustainability and like, you know, uh, you know, just being responsible as a human being, it's hard for me to say I want to send. It's not my goal to send stuff over there. It's my goal to get Thai coffee out around here. And then in the future, if I started doing, like, coffee on a larger scale somewhere else, Thai coffee, like, I would do it a slower approach, you know, send the green bean by boat, bring a roaster over there and have a little satellite roaster that does, like, Thai coffee. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I think it's it's a, it's something we got to share. It's like wine. You know, I think wine kind of broke my uh, my reasoning in, in when it comes to sustainability because when it comes to food, you know, I won't import anything, and I'll try to make the best I can with what I got. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a handicap. You know, even right now, roasting Thai coffee, it's like it's it's starting to get better, but it's still not Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. It's still not you know Panama geishas and you know all this Colombia. You know, there's a lot of you know, Mexico has amazing coffee. There's amazing coffee all over Yemen. You know, there's a lot of good coffee here, but the majority of it's still not not that there. level. Yeah. And do you feel like it's getting closer, like with working with the farms and stuff? Like, do you think it's getting? It's there's getting a lot better? of people who care, mm. and I think that's what we need right now. We need people who who care. You know, there's a lot of people who don't care, and people who are doing it just for commercial, and they're selling it to people like Nestle and Starbucks, and they're just you know, they don't even care. They're just buying the the cheapest uh, commercial grade, you know, Arabica, and then just you know, burning the shit out of it and putting it in bags and hustling it off. Right. You know, a lot of it's export. So when when there's a there's it's we're talking specialty coffee, so you know the majority of the world doesn't drink specialty coffee. Yeah. You know whatever that means. It's uh, you know it's it's really about you know the micro lots and and people actually putting love and, and care into something and separating the different varietals before roasting and or before processing. Even you know it's uh, there's not many people who are going that route and not a lot of people the consumers as well. A lot of people don't realize that. You know, they don't. A lot of people like burnt coffee. When let's you, let's yeah. start to change that right now. Yeah. Like let's let's end this podcast. Like 
I'm a guy who used to maybe, I always loved coffee, but I used to not scoff at coffee geeks, but I used to not quite get it. And I'm like, now I'm on the other side of the fence. Like I really get it. And the parallels with, with wine, I think are pretty apt. I mean, there's, cause it, again, like if you, if you have really good coffee that's done right, there's so many notes in it and, and variations between beans and the way it's roasted and the way you choose to extract it. I mean, there's so much to learn. So if I may be so bold, ending the podcast just with like some practical tips, I would say if anyone wants to have a better coffee experience, grind your own beans. I mean, Definitely. that makes a huge, I, I couldn't believe the difference, even just that simple. Definitely. You know, that's, that's one of the most crucial things too, is because, uh, you know, once you grind the coffee, it starts to lose its, its aromatic elements, you know, it starts to lose the, yeah, I do. Yeah, I like. I mean, is a, a chef as well. It's very, it's very important the aromatics, but you know, it's uh, losing. You, you're losing that. You're losing the essence. You know, they say I don't know something within you know 15 to 30 seconds you lose like 30 percent of the, you know, of the of the aromatics, and that that definitely changes the experience. And then at the same time, if we're talking on you know how you're consuming it as well, you know, your extraction, and you know, for me, drinking lighter roasted coffee is not just about, you know, it's not just about It's about flavor as well, and then it's a purist approach. But if you want to taste the fruit of the coffee, you want to, you want to actually figure out what's what what the what's in it. If you burn it, you're tasting carbon. Right. You know, you're not getting the you're not getting the experience. You're it's like buying a good steak and and overcooking it or buying you know. Donald you, Trump. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, that's how he takes steak. I'm sure he takes everything like that. <laughs> you know, getting some beautiful organic vegetables and just like you know you know boiling the shit out of them right. you know you're killing you're taking all the vitamins the nutrients the you know the 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 essence of it you know and coffee is like i think one thing you have to get used to drinking lighter roasted coffee is you're actually getting more of the benefits of the coffee you know antioxidants and and the the the, the nutrients that are in the coffee you know by burning it you're not getting those you know it's the same thing by eating an overcooked vegetable you know you overcook the vegetable you're 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 killing it you know, that's a really like, important point. Yeah. You know, it's uh, and it's also like, you know, you're not going to get to taste anything. You know, you might as well just buy, you know, bad coffee if you're going to, you know, if you're going to do that anyway. But then it's, it's it takes getting used to, you know, a lot of people, which, you know, I hear all the time is, oh, sour. Right. Oh, especially in Thailand, you know, Thai people are sensitive to acidity on its own. You know, they're, they're used to bold flavors, you know, at least all of them combined with the acidity. But if you don't have the sweetness and the, you know, the spice and the umami and, you know, all these things, they're, they're, they're missing the point. They're just like, oh, it's only sour. I'm like, well, coffee's, you know, it's a fruit. And, you know, there's definitely a high acidity, you know, high acidity to it. And then Thai coffee as well is, is known for its acidity. There's a lot of uh, katui, which is like a, a you know, a, a, a crossover and it's also known for its, you know, brightness and, uh, you know, lack of body kind of. Mm. So, I mean, I think Thai coffee is getting better because a lot of people are coming in and trying to, you know, introduce new new techniques and improve something. You know, it's like, uh, you know, improve the quality of what you already have. You know, there's different ways of lowering the acidity, like the melolactic fermentation we're doing or like the aging in the wine barrels or casts or, you know, you're actually changing the structures of it. You know, you're curing it in a sense, you're, you know, your, your, uh, fermentation is, you know, key 
in everything, you know, food as well. It's like, you know, it's the, one of the most important things that I think people take for granted, you know, cultures and, 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 you know, we wouldn't have cheese. We wouldn't have, a lot, you know, medicines. We wouldn't have, you know, a lot of things. So it's a, yeah, it's an exciting time. And I, I can't wait to see, you know, what happens with Thai coffee. And, and I hope it gets its, its respect and, and every year it gets better. So, you know, keep going. Absolutely, man. And I think that day is coming. I think I, I really do. If people want to connect with you, what's the best way they can do that? Uh, you know, probably through my, my website, you know, lefthandroasters.com. Uh, yeah, email, email me. When are you going to have t-shirts? Dustin has really good branding, man. Like, it would make a nice t-shirt. Soon. Really nice soon, branding. Soon. I was looking at it, actually. Probably some hats and some shirts. And, cool. Yeah, definitely soon. It's on my list, you know. Currently, I'm, uh, you know, I also just launched a, a, a something I've always wanted to do is branding my own kitchen equipment. So, you know, tools, utensils. Uh, I just launched a project called Kitchen E-Commerce, uh, kitchenecommerce.com, and it's all about, you know, giving sh- young chefs, uh, restaurant workers, people who who need the the right tools for their trade at affordable prices you know so we're pretty much getting on branded quality uh equipment and we're selling it online you know delivered you know straight to your doorstep uh f- you know free shipping worldwide or yeah worldwide great uh you know we're only unlocking certain countries at a time but you know at this point we're you know we're doing some in europe we're doing it in the u.s um you know there's all sorts of you know there's all sorts of uh, it's starting to open so now i'm trying to figure out how to like really validate it and get some chefs backing it and you know move forward but it's something i've always wanted to do and design my own tools as well so you know in between this and that and you know working with like the kind of a slow food movement in, in thailand and uh, all about sustainability and and you know insight into that you know i'm kind of I'm, I'm i'm always moving very good <laughs> So lefthandroasters.com and kitchenecommerce.com. Yeah. Great. Well, man, we got to do this again. Yeah, I feel like we, there's more we, we could definitely talk about. So let's do uh, it again sometime. Yeah, we yeah. could do a whole music. Yeah, this is definitely... We, Thanks for this, man. Yes, pleasure. <laughs> All right. Cool, bro. There you have it, my friends. I hope you enjoyed that kitchen table conversation with Dustin Joseph. A reminder that you can find information about Dustin and his coffee project at lefthandroasters.com. You can find show notes and links to everything we talked about today at humansinlove.com. And I'll also ask you to please leave a rating and review of Humans in Love using Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. It's good to be back after taking August off, and I have a lot of great interviews lined up already for this month. I'll be sharing some great new episodes with you very soon, so if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and visit humansinlove.com to sign up for my wacky, weird little mailing list. Before I let you go, my friends, I'll remind you that life is short, far too short, in fact, to drink bad coffee. Thanks a lot, folks. I will talk to you again next week. Thanks.